I want to do something that has meant something to me, but we're going to talk on why does God care about how his name is spoken? You know, it just seems unusual to me that in the Lord's Prayer, even when we pray and we want to give praise to him, you would think it would say something about you're wonderful. You'd think that's how if you wanted to praise the Lord, you'd say you're glorious, you're wonderful. The way Jesus said is to bless his name, to say that your name is Hallowed. It's an unusual word. You know, that you're blessing his name. So I'm going to start you with Ezekiel 36, 20 through 21. And I want to discuss a concept here. It's something that bothers God. And I've tried to in life have myself care about what God cares about. Because usually there's a split divide between people. I care about what I care about. God cares about what he cares about. And we never meet. (laughs) There's always this difference between us and God, that I have some things I care about. He cares about a different set of things. But if you can teach your heart to say, I care about what God cares about, and then it starts this beautiful relationship with you and God, because then he'll care about what you care about. And then you say, Lord, I care about what you care about. And you start this relationship. So there's something in scripture that I've never heard anyone talk about that God cares about. But in Ezekiel 36, 20 through 21, it talks about it. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave the land. I had concern for my holy name, but the people of Israel did not. They profaned it among the nations where they had gone. So he was concerned about his name, and they profaned it. That's what he got out of his own, what he's calling his holy people, profaned his holy name. So today's lesson is something called blasphemy. And people wonder what blasphemy is. It's really one of the most serious sins we can get into if we blasphemy God. I'm going to ask this question, why does he care? Why does he care about what the other nations think about his name? Now, I'm going to just say something that some of y'all have read that are literature people, but, you know, it's kind of what people say when Americans are traveling abroad. They call it the ugly American. (laughs) We're louder. We're obnoxious. I mean, there's a book called The Ugly American. In some ways, you know, if you were lighthearted about this scripture, you could say, well, it's kind of that concept that wherever you went, you made everyone hate God because of you. Why does God care? Why does this bother him? I want to hear your ideas. Well, you wouldn't want someone you love to hate you, and he loves everybody. In the Old Testament, that was an expressed idea that he loved everybody? That's a fact about him. It's a New Testament understanding Mm -hmm. looking back. So you're saying that the very fact that he cared about his name among the nations should have given him a hint he cared about those people. There was no evangelism going on to these other tribes. I mean, it's terrible to think that this is how it had to happen. You had to kill all these other tribes just so your people didn't get polluted. Like, they were so inclined to listen to what everyone else thought and do what all the other foreigners did that the other foreigners were so badly behaved. There was so much wickedness that they had to kill out all their enemies so that they could come in and try to be pure. If you watch the movie Noah, it's a terrible, they didn't do a good job according to the Bible. But it was so bad, God couldn't find anyone on earth doing anything righteous. It was just completely wickedness. And so sometimes society gets to that point. 
So you see this verse, and wherever they went, they caused God's name to be spoken of badly. All right. I was seeing if y'all could come up with any reason why it mattered to him. So you're going to just say that he loved him. Okay. So in other words, he had a reputation. And when they went into the land, there was a reputation that God protected his people and answered their prayers and did miracles for them. What we're talking about on this is God has a reputation and we're the ones that make him look good or make him look bad. God's reputation means something. We sometimes think that we have this idea of we're not supposed to care what people think. But this Bible study is kind of different than that because God cares what people think in this Bible study. And you're going to have to explain to me the difference because people pleasing and caring what people think gets us in trouble. So I think because of that, we're training ourselves. Oh, I shouldn't care what people think. I don't want to be a people pleaser. So we get the idea that God doesn't care what people think. I think it's that we need to care what people think about God. Very good. Will, you said it very well. All right. So that divides out the difference between people pleasing and what this is talking about. So I'm going to give you a line. Does your life make God out to be a liar? It's called the watching world. And it's your life against the backdrop of the whole world. So you look at you and you look at the world and you tell yourself, the people are looking at you. That's the backdrop, but your life, it's either you're showing God out to be truthful or you're showing him out to be a liar. And this is the first time I ever saw it. So I've always seen it with David. He was really angry with his commander. He's just looking for something to kill the pain. So he's out on his balcony and this starts a complete curse in David's life. But he sees a woman And you don't know much about it. You don't know if she knew she was being seen or if it's just the old days when you're a king. They just brought him what he said. He said, bring me that woman. And he had just a one-night stand with her. And lo and behold, she tells him that news. I'm pregnant. And that could have worked out if her husband had been at home (laughs) or on a short journey. But he was in an army and he was off. So... The last thing a man wants to do is come home to a pregnant wife. Well, this is what happened to David. He couldn't cover this very well. I mean, he had just been angry. It didn't mean anything more to him than that. And he had done a painkiller. And he had sinned. And the worst thing of all, I don't think he had asked her at the time, whose wife are you? But he finds out from his men that she's the wife of his mighty men. It'd be like, let's just use your sheriff's department. It'd be like having a bunch of guys that you really care about and you guys all work together. And then finding out the the lady that he had brought to him was one of his best men's wife. It makes trouble. He had not just picked a woman, an unattached woman. He had managed to pick someone that it really messed David up because David had had a lot of integrity in life. And if you're one of these people who you grew up loving God, having a lot of integrity, the devil will try to do one thing to you to wreck it. It's amazing that a few hours can change your whole life. David doesn't seem to want to walk out of it nobly and fess up. He decides, we can clean this up. 
I'll just call for the guy to come home. You know how the story goes. Let him come home. Let him spend a little time with his wife, and he can name the baby after him. <laughs> you know, that's what, so David thinks this is going to go down easy. So he tells him, go home to your wife. Oh, this is terrible because the guy acts like him. Oh, I couldn't go home to my wife and spend time when my brothers in arms are out there fighting? Doesn't that sound like David? You know, I have so much integrity. I must not go home to my wife. Look at how everyone else is fighting. And David's going, go home, go home. Well, this isn't working. So David says, it's still not a problem. Come back to my house. I'm going to get him really drunk. That'll take care of it. So David gets the guy really drunk. But even drunk, this guy can hold to his scruples. And he says, oh, I must not go home to my wife. And David is going to go, please go home to your wife. It would have saved his life. And then David doesn't exactly kill the guy. You know, so he feels better about his conscience. David starts laying in bed and thinks, I'm a righteous guy. You know, this is how he thinks. Because he's been righteous all of his life. It just... Now he's not, and he hadn't caught up to the fact he's not righteous now. And so he's laying in bed, and he's thinking, and he's like, people die in war all the time. Why not it be him? You know, if people have got to die, you lose a certain amount of guys every time, you know, there's a war that goes on. We'll just, let me help pick which guy needs to die this time. You see, him. this is a shovel, Robert. He's digging himself deeper. <laughs> you know, you've gone from calling the guy home And now you come up with this idea. And we would all have a fit about this passage, but we've all been there where sometimes we're like, you try different things to cover what you've done. And it's in the covering that he went from what displeases God here becomes, oh, it's huge. Like you can tell he doesn't care about anyone but himself and getting out of this trouble. At this point, he tells his commander, and this is the horrible thing. Y'all, this is the part of the movie that it bothers you. He has to get a note to his commander to let it be this guy that gets killed. So he lets the guy carry his own note to the commander. These stories in the Bible are like movies. You know, it's kind of like this thing. No one can make this stuff up. So the guy carries a note and it tells Joab, do something stupid in the next battle. He said, go up too close and take this guy that's carrying the note with you and let him get too close to the enemy. And you know what happens there. He was telling his commander, and let what happens happen. And the guy is just like, why would I make a bad strategy in military and everybody look bad at me? You know, the guy is worried about his military reputation. He's like, why would I send a group of guys in that close? And all the wives back home will say, and the children, that was Joab's stupid mistake. And David goes, let it be on me. You're going to have some fallout for this, but just let it be on me. Well, unfortunately, it worked perfectly to plan. They put the guy in close, and sure enough, they killed a certain amount of them in the next battle. They had the burial. Everything went bad. I mean, went well. Went bad, went well. And David thinks he's gotten away with it, and time's ticking off. It's not quite a year because of the baby. You can kind of gauge it by that. Quite a bit of time's gone by, and David thinks he's gotten away with it. But you're seeing something happen in David's heart that's scary, and his heart starts getting hard. And sometimes with a person, you're thinking, I wonder why they're suddenly getting hard. But they've got something hidden back there that they can't forgive themselves for. So many people that don't walk with God, they've got one little thing in their life, and they think 
Even if God could forgive them, they can't forgive themselves. We've led people to the Lord that were very old and they were like, I deserve to go to hell. I can't forgive myself. And so this is the state that David was in. He was getting harder in his heart. In fact, there's a very odd verse in the Bible. It's very unclear what it means, but it sounds like that David went from just doing what he was supposed to as a military commander, but he actually started putting the people he captured into torture. It's just one sentence. It's what had happened in his heart. He was angry with himself. So you see that anger growing. It started with, not with the adultery with this woman, it started with him getting mad at one of his men. He was angry with Joab. You'll see that anger with Joab lasted his whole life. Like Joab had killed Abner and David's just mad about it. He's just like, why are you this kind of a guy? Like I had a defection. I was going to be able to unite both kingdoms together. We wouldn't even have bloodshed. And just because you're so territorial, Joab, you had to knock this guy off and you faked it out like it was going to be a hug and you stabbed him and you killed him. And David's angry. People always start with, okay, David went out and he had lust. It wasn't that. He was angry. And he was still angry at this man. And that's why he didn't go out to battle. How do I know? I had someone once (laughs) a long time ago that was leading and everything they did was wrong. And it would make you so angry. Like just being around them made you angry. And one time I just let them have it. Just go lead. Because you can't seem to get them to straighten up. And I always understood what David was going through in his anger towards this person that he would just say, I'm not going to do what I'm made to do. The day I'm so mad that I won't come in here and teach and I just go back to my house, I'm in pretty bad shape. And sometimes you get somebody in a position and you can't do anything about it. In fact, you'll hear David swear and he'll go, These guys are too strong for me. And sometimes in leadership, you can get people that are so not in tune with the Lord that you just get so frustrated at your own leadership because you're like, I have integrity, but these guys don't seem to have any fear of the Lord in them. I made a decision once. I'm not going to hire people I'm afraid of because of that scripture. And there's times you can get maneuvered by the devil that you get so cornered that you get people that are so controlling that you don't know what to do about their spirit of control, their bad attitude. We were checking out a couple of days ago at a business and stuff because that reminds me of so-and-so. And that reminded me of when I was cornered in my own building by my own employee. And I was like, you need to never have anyone that works for you or works with you in ministry that you're afraid of. So David's heart was in bad shape, but now the devil has gotten what he wants And now David has become that man. He's become that very thing he was mad at Joab for being. And that's the trap. And it all starts by having perpetual anger and not getting it right with the Lord. If you're perpetually angry at someone right now, I would tell you you're in danger. And I would tell you no matter how hard that conversation is, you need to talk to them. Because you've got to work out that anger. This happens to the good people, the happy people, the ones that you would never think could, could be trapped by this. So I have this thing with David that, to me, he made a ton of mistakes. And in this situation, to me, it's kind of like I could say he made Joab twice the son of hell that he already was. 
Because who did he deliver the letter to? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do you think Joab thinks of David? So David because doesn't he leave. Quiet. Oh, he carried out what the king wanted him to do. And he kept quiet. But between David and Joab, he knows what kind of man David really is. So does that make Joab want to honor David? No. That's why he kills Abner. No. He killed Abner before this happened. Well, I'm just saying it's a problem. This starts the curse in David's life. This starts the children. But what I'm going to say with Steph, because I wrote a lesson once on this concept, it's when you are a man after God's own heart, you got to be careful because the devil will try to kill it in you. Because my point is he messed up. It took one thing to change it. One secret. One thing done in secret. And it caused him problems with Joab till his deathbed. And he said, kill the guy. Mm -hmm. Just killing. Yeah. I'll tell you where people are in danger. If you've always been a good guy, you don't have any experience in what to do when you suddenly do something bad. Like what David ran into is, and I've seen this happen a million times, a guy will make a huge mistake that really wrecks his life, but he'll still treat himself like he's the good guy he's always known. He'll always have that good guy image, and he'll think he's still a good guy, even though he's already been tempted and fallen. He's changed up the, let's call it the law of sowing and reaping. He's changed up what he's going to now be reaping from his mistakes. So he's still letting himself off the hook. He's still seeing himself as a better man. The hardest man to lead to the Lord is not a vile sinner. The hardest man to lead to the Lord is a man who considers himself righteous. You can almost not lead a, quote, good man to the Lord that sees himself as good. Why? Because he doesn't see any need for the Lord. So it's very dangerous. I wrote a lesson on when you're a man after God's own heart. Heart men are the most dangerous for me to steer when I'm discipling because they give themselves extra points. <laughs> They give themselves extra grace. So if a kid was good all through school and he hits college, the good one is the harder one for me to help. If the kid has at 16 already realized he's a sinner, he's rebellious, he started working his rebellion out. And this is with women too. This other one, the compliant kid is your harder kid. So if you know this about yourself, this will help because David had a switch if he could have stopped it right at the beginning with just adultery, but he let it continue on and the hypocrisy, it was so bad, God had to intervene on it. So that's this moment when God says, enough. I'm writing this concept. This is when you're chosen and when you're favored and when you're unique, when you have a special place with God that you don't get into something where you violate something God desperately cares about. This is where I first saw this verse. It's 2 Samuel 12, verse 4. So when God comes in and through Nathan the prophet, he's dressing David down. And I've always told you, if you've never been dressed down, you haven't experienced what needs to take place in your heart. This is when I first saw what God was upset about. And it says, the Lord says, look, I've done all this stuff for you. I blessed you. I gave you everything I could think of to give you. 
And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Why have you done this? That's how he speaks to someone that's unique, someone special, someone that's walked with him all of his life. This is a boy who used to, when he was a kid, would worship God out in the fields. This is a guy who became a legend in his teenage years. And God is talking to him and said, I've done everything for you. How could you do this and shut me out? But in this, he says a phrase, and I find it all through the Bible, but I never hear anyone speak about it. And that's why I want you to know this so you can care about what God cares about. And this is whether you were the good guy or not the good guy. This is something God cares about. And he said, I would have given you anything, but I have no choice in this matter because you have caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And so I wrote this note to myself. God cares about his enemies. And I don't need to be what causes them to cuss. What they're saying are things like this. It doesn't work. Look at him. Another rendering is thou hast given great reason to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. This is unusual theology to think that people have reason to blaspheme. And so when God's mad at you, it's odd what he's protecting in this. Yeah, there was the fault to Uriah. Yes, it was the fault to this baby that's going to be born. There's all these faults that are on the table. But God is concerned about causing enemies to blaspheme. Until you serve God, you don't even know what enemies are. <laughs> if you get really sold out to God, you'll acquire more enemies. And I don't care how likable you find yourself <laughs> or how much oh, yeah. you feel like you're a good person. It says those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So you don't need any illusions of what this life's going to be like for you. People who hate God will end up hating you. <laughs> so... When God comes and he has this talk with David, he's telling him, there's nothing I would withhold from you, but you can't take for yourself. Like, you got to let me give it to you and not take it. Because you did a very bad job of choosing who you were going to take from. <laughs> it's in this situation where God comes and he says, David, you've given cause to your enemies to blaspheme. One thing I have learned from different armies that are moral, you can't let your enemies hate get down inside of you or you'll become like they are. And that's what had happened to David. He was trying to become like the very thing he hated. And so the hate of the enemy and the stupidity and the foolishness and all the reasons you're fighting, if you're not careful, you'll make a mistake and you'll become it. I'm trying to put in your mind, even though every day David got up, ate his Cheerios, and went and fought enemies, he still had to not hate them and care about them. The warrior, the warrior that has to get up every day and kill the enemies of the Lord has still got to care about them, and that's you. The very reason I do what I do is because I care about those people who don't know that speak against you. The very people, it's like you have to care for your enemy. God cares for those who blaspheme him. And so when it was all said and done, God is upset with David because he caused the enemies to blaspheme and God didn't like it. 
And so I'm asking you, what does your life do? Does it cause people to blaspheme? It starts at low levels and it moves up. So we look at this and we say a man after God's own heart and you have blame and shame, the fallout. I'm going to read you some words. There are a certain type of mentality of enemies that they'll triumph in your fall. They're going to triumph in David falling. They've been waiting for him to fall. They knew it couldn't be real. They knew there's no way you can be that happy. They know there's no way you could be that good. They know there's no way you're going to really be a Christian and still stick this out from six months. They are hoping you'll fall. And God says, now they're going to speak ill of me. They knew it was all a farce. They knew it was all a lie. It seems like one of the reasons God's upset is it gets rid of the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's held in very high esteem. Like, and it's like Angie's talking about the man's world. The fear is the respect, mm-hmm. the reverence, the honor. And so what it causes the enemies to blaspheme is they go, oh, well, God really isn't who this guy says he is. So, therefore, I'm no longer afraid of him. I no longer respect that. So what's happened is there's a real evil out there that wants David to fall. And now they're being given what they want. And that's a tragedy. And in your life, you can't let the (laughs) demons, you can't let those people rejoice that you really weren't what they thought there was a hope that you might be. And so what she's saying with King David is one of the problems, and Angie and I have gotten into this so many times, one of the problems is he thinks, well, I'm a good guy. Yeah. I'm a righteous guy. His self-talk was, well, I'm a good guy. Well, he may be a good guy, but he's doing the wrong thing. What he lacked, in my opinion, is his Jonathan. It was supposed to be David and Jonathan on the throne, and the enemy took out Jonathan. Yeah. Like, sometimes these assignments are not one-person assignments. Sometimes they're two people. Sometimes they're a group. What each individual is going to bring to the scenario is, like, not only needed, but it's a requirement. And you can see where David got (coughs) set up with losing his Jonathan. He needed what Jonathan was going to bring to the table, and so he failed in that area. Because guess who would have been his military commander? Jonathan. You think about the Ammonites. They were the ones who, that little group of men came up too close. And so they were the ones in that battle who had killed Uriah when he was put in front of them. And maybe God was thinking about what happened when they went home that night. And when they got so close to Uriah that they were able to kill him. And they went home and gave their idols credit. And they blasphemed God. Look, we killed all these Israelites tonight. Here's this man, and he prays. He sings psalms. Oh, now we've got a real problem for God. Have you ever thought that we can give God problems? Perplexities? Sometimes, you know, we think that crazy thought that they used to use where atheists would always say to me, he's God. He should be able to, you know, put a square peg in a round hole, the rock that no one can move, and they do all their little atheist games that they play. But the truth is, sometimes we can give God dilemmas that's difficult for God to work out. I told the Lord once, I don't want to give you dilemmas. And I can see the fact that you love me. It gives you a dilemma with me. Because listen to this dilemma. 
Was not Saul rejected for less of a matter? Why then must David live and still reign? God had gotten rid of Saul, but he's established David. And God's telling him, you've messed me up. I took Saul out for people-pleasing. I told him the kingdom's been ripped from him. I threw him out because he wouldn't kill Agag and he kept the sheep. And now what do I do about you? Because I love you. Boy, love can create some unusual things, some unusual dilemmas, can it? So God's in a mess. And we never think about the almighty God getting in a mess. But when you get to a certain place with God, he'll talk to you like a man talks to another man. He will talk to you about his problems. And that's what he's telling David here. He says, you know what happened before you. And what now should I do with you? You've made a mess for me. And then now to this day, it's still a problem for God. Just the very fact it is in Scripture. It was a problem back then, but now it's a problem today. I got a call from some friends of mine, and they're Bible teachers. And the anger she had at this verse, she goes, why would God deal with David in such a way? She's a teacher. She's offended by it. She goes, why would God treat a man like this? Why men? Why would God say this to David? And I have never seen such bitterness and offense at David And to this day, people stumble over this problem. Still anger. Still the, maybe hers is gender, maybe hers is hurt, maybe hers is, I don't know. But she is so angry that God still loves him. You know, some people look at it and say God treated him awful hard. Some people look at it and say, that why did God not just kill him on the spot? So neither way God goes is it going to be right for God. If he punishes David, then it's going to be like it's too much because he loves him. And if he doesn't punish him, it's never enough for those who who are offended by it. And so now we're not even talking about the enemies of God. We're talking about Bible study teachers who get to this point and it makes them so angry because they have so much hurt in their past that they are highly offended because they're still a victim to this very thing. Look at how many victims David caused, and yet you still entreat him as a lover would entreat another. That's how God approaches him. He's saying, where did I do you wrong? At what level did I do you wrong that you wouldn't have turned to me during any of this? And it caused this mess. I'm inviting you into a world where God treats you with sort of a relationship between you and him. It'll take a while to get there. You build trust. You build the communication. And some people will never get there. They'll always be between God. It's just between them. He tells them what to do and they do it. But there are some people who get in with God and they become favored with him. They become favorite. They become the one who's after his very own heart. And if you don't desire it, I don't know how you could get there with him. Let me say something on this, because it was actually part of my Bible reading this morning in 1 Peter 5. And I think a lot of where we're making our mistake is as Americans, we've been taught, hey, look out for number one. Being around the Jews, they look out for one another like family. And we as Christians are supposed to look out for one another 
like family. Like we're the family of God. And where we've missed a lot of these concepts is we're only looking out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not for the good of the group, the good of the herd, the good of God's family. It's why can't I? Why can't I? And anytime you're doing that, you're missing something. And I'm going to say you're selfish. You're only thinking of yourself. Instead of looking at what the kingdom of God is supposed to do here. We miss the big picture and we point out the little bitty detail because usually we're offended or we're bitter or something's not handled with God. Like there's something that's not right in you. We're supposed to look at things as a whole. Like That's why you're told to look over your flock. Like what if the one leading you, what if all the pastors are just only looking out for themselves? But yet, what you see in the American church is if you have a good pastor, he's looking out for you, but everybody else is individual. That's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to look at each other like a family. That's why Angie and I get so tickled in Israel, y'all have heard us say it a hundred times. These two people almost hit, and they get out, you know, get mad at each other, and then they one of them asks for directions. Because... They're family. And you'll watch an older woman get on to a guy and say, you're not supposed to be doing that. Like, who's your mother? (laughs) It's funny, but that's what they do. Because it used to be when I went over to a friend's house, if I did something wrong, I got in trouble by the parents. It should still be that way, but it's not. So we've lost that give it a rip about what happens to everybody else. And that's what this is talking about. When Sam and White's friends come to my house, they abide by mine and Eric's rules. If we speak in tongues, they get to hear it. If they say something wrong, they get corrected. Otherwise, coming to my house is no different than going to somebody else's house. You remember when you put the fat leg and the skinny leg up here? A little bit, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the self-leg, and then you talked about the giving the crowns to the Lord. I want you to put up two things, because sometimes I think on the board you can see it better. But put up the word child and put up the word lover. So child is the concept that you have with God where it's all about what you need. And you're constantly at that place with God. This is what I need, and this is what you need. And you never, ever in your life have you thought about what God needs. In fact, that's bad theology. God doesn't need anything. He's God. You're thinking like a child. A child thinks that about his parents. My parents don't need anything. I can tell my mom I hate her at two. and She doesn't need anything. It's the child. And people go into marriage with that. If you go into marriage with the child mentality, it's I'm marrying you because I need you. I have needs. I need this. I need this. If you go into relationships, it's child And the marriage is always competing needs. And it's not that that can't work out. There's a lot of marriages, they've somehow found some kind of rhythm to their competing needs. Like, he needs this, she needs that, and they work some kind of agreement out. But it's the thought of the child. And most people with their walk with God will go their whole life like the child. They will start with God like that, and they never grow out of that idea Clear to the end of their life, they're still in the child stage with God. It's what I told you that people do. 
If you don't answer one of my prayers, then I'm going to say you don't exist. Every demand of a child has to be met. The child, when he's screaming for candy in the Walmart lane, he's not thinking about what you gave him two months ago. The child wants his needs met the minute they occur to him, and it's the child. You'll never get to this conversation with God if you do the child. To get to the lover is you honestly love them. You love them. You want what they need more than you want anything else. It's not a doormat, believe me. You take good care of yourself because why? You want the beloved to love you. And so the lover in you approaches God. It grows out of the child. And your number one concern in your life is what does God want? What does he think? David had always thought as a lover with God. Listen to him. How can I die, God? Who would praise you? (laughs) I had to return to the land of the living so I could give you praise. And God's like, how could you die? How could I live without you? And they talk backwards and forth. And God with no shame in Acts is still saying, David is a man after my own heart. Because he approached God as a lover. It's not a spiritual thing, God, I just want to know your needs. It's a lover. It's a thing of, I want to do everything I can think of to please him. That is what a lover does. I have to please you. I have to please you. I have to please you. That's why this Bible study almost seems to go against my concepts of not people pleasing. Because God is applying it to a lover. He goes, David, you and I are lovers. We're lovers. So therefore, we've got to have that thought towards our enemies. It's how lovers think. And so it's not demanding personal needs here. In some ways, what I hear you saying is it's in your heart how you steward it. Like Saul's heart, let me raise the dead because I need. I got to summon up somebody because I need. Let me keep the sheep because I need. I'm not going to kill Agag because I need. The people are running away from me. I need. Saul thought as if I don't take care of my needs, no one else will. Yeah. But you can see that the way that David and God thought about each other was God was like, you know, I'm completely committed to everything you need and more. Like you got your own set of wives. You've got all Saul's wives. What more do you need? Like I didn't see that you were needing anything else or as a lover, I would have given it to you. And so the needs thing is handled by the other person. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Like you don't have to say your needs to God because he's already given them to you because he's the lover. He's trying to please you and you're trying to please him. Each person is concerned about the other person's needs. So you don't approach him with a needs basis like a child does. In that kind of a thing, what ends up happening, the hardest problem for a birthday is you can't think of anything you need. Because the lover has watched you, studied you, and given you everything you need. But what happens is you get a lover person married to a child, and guess what happens? It's a very messed up relationship. The lover gives that child everything they need, and the child goes, thank you, I deserved it. That's most marriages. (laughs) Two children or one lover and one child. Very seldom do you find two lovers. The devil's after the lovers. And he caused a lover to fall. God can't fail, but we do. And this was the failure of a lover. And that's why God approaches him like that, because there was nothing left that God hadn't given David or wouldn't give him. 
I'm encouraging you. There is a level with God and it's trust that you figure out. God wants to give me the secret desires of my heart even more than I want them. You can't understand this conversation. I can't explain it to my friend because you can't understand it apart from the frame of a lover. That's what this conversation between God and David's like. This is not a normal conversation between a man and his God. You know, other men get this reaction from God. I'm God. Who do you think you are? I made this heavens. Who are you? Where were you on creation day? I say it and you do it. You weren't there and you're trying to advise me. Who gets those kind of conversations? Pride and <laughs> children. Like when you rise up in pride with God, the kind of conversations you get are those. Like, I'm God and you're not. And you need to remember it and you need to learn it. You know, your dad gives you that about your teenage years. The day you think you're smarter than your dad, he tells you. <laughs> he tells you, I brought you into this world and I can take you back. The, the fist comes up, you know. It's so easy to see, and God's made it for us to see on human relationships. I'm saying you've got to see it on this because God gives different people different conversations. And we go, oh, this unfairness of God. No, it's not the unfairness of God. It depends on what you're bringing to the table. God has in his nature to want to spoil you and indulge you. But if you can't handle it, he can't do it. No more than you would hand a two-year-old the keys to your car. And it has to be genuine. He knows your heart. We add genuine to this stuff. We'll be here another day. It's true. It's so true. So to my dear friend who is angry about this, she's not approaching God as a lover. She doesn't have it in her. She's too needy. And that's where I would invite you into wholeness and let God heal what's broken because you can't love until you're whole. Like in love, it, it makes a wholeness. You're approaching God in love because there's not anything you need from me. The need element is off the table. C.S. Lewis uses <coughs> language like you get away from need love and you get into gift love. So you get into, you give it to them not because they need it, but because it's a gift. But when it goes wrong among lovers, it's a real problem. It's traps. Because it's meant to work right. It's never meant to work wrong. And for some reason, David, he just let in that little bit of resentment, just like my friends who taught me this principle by me one day watching them in an argument. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's shocking to watch two lovers argue. Because they're trying to outdo each other. When two children, let's just say two people that are married to each other that think like a child, when they argue, they're trying to outdo each other. They're trying to swindle each other. They're trying to get their needs met when they're arguing. They're arguing for self. But when two people that are married are this style here, they can't even argue well with each other because they're completely enamored with what the other one needs. And I was watching two people argue, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I understand the Godhead now. Like, the way people argue at this level is shocking. They're not trying to take away from each other. They're arguing like this. This is the problem that God is in now. God permits Israel to see, on the one hand, the ruin of Saul, the king of the people's choice, the king that self-will had brought in when they rejected God. But now David... How David, the king of God's choice, 
God's saying to him, you complicated it. You made me a respecter of persons. David, I'm not a respecter of persons, but somehow this has turned the situation around on the love, and you've made me a respecter of persons. He had stripped the kingdom from Saul's hand right near the beginning, but he establishes David forever. You know, it's it's unusual. They had promised each other forever. God and David had promised each other forever. To this day, some still stumble over this. David, was he loved because he's good? It's hard to explain what makes two love each other. What makes two people love? It's hard to to not only explain, but to understand it. Will God remove David? Will he break their covenant? Stop the messianic line? What's he going to do? Well, David took it in his own hands, and he did what only he could do in this matter. He gave true repentance. The words are so strong in Psalm 51. David answered, and he said, God, what do you want from me? What can I give you? If you want a burnt offering, I'd give you a burnt offering. But I know it's my heart that you want. You can say this, David repented well. But the sin is still obvious. It's still out there. There's still the repercussions. What's God going to do? Surprisingly, God does not block out the tie that was formed with Bathsheba. The lineage still stands. In Acts, God still brings it forward that David is a man after his very own heart. God does not let go of the love. Though it's confusing to some, you still see that the love is still where God can say wholeheartedly, he is a man after my heart. So some still bring forward the sin and others bring forward the love, the relationship. Well, the relationship. The relationship between David and and God at this moment. Let's say it's complicated. To this day, the Gentiles blaspheme. The heathens mock. And some take offense. This is the moment that we see right here in this scripture. The Lord restored the fellow I'm talking about. But Saul gets the... To him who has, more shall be given. But to him who doesn't have, even what he has will be stripped from him. So you can see why one time I wrote myself a note. When I sin now, I've committed a crime against love. There's no Robin Hood in it. I'm out stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. When I sin now, I'm I'm sinning against love. I've committed a crime against love. It gives you a whole nother way to look at you and the Lord. So the failings that we would tend to have and what God's bringing to the table about to David is what you did not care about is what I care about and that's what other people will think. You've caused the Gentiles to blaspheme. You've caused the enemies of the Lord to not think it was all real. This is a much more serious talk. In the pounding of the pulpit and the fist and me saying, don't people please, I think we can get ourselves into trouble of not realizing what's at stake in the fact if you get an attitude, you don't care what people think. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 9, 
it says that my name should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. The child has a history of ingratitude and rebellion. So you have the children of Israel and they don't last very long in the promised land without going here. But think about it. The first parents, the first couple, Adam and Eve, they don't last long in the land without ingratitude and rebellion. Like there's not much to Adam and Eve's story, is there? You don't have all these wonderful things that Adam and Eve did for thousands of years living in the paradise. Pretty quickly they get into ingratitude and rebellion. So is the history of man, the rebel from his maker. Not much happens until they rebel. And then Moses publicly says to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let him go that they may serve me. And God argues in this verse, but if they fell right in the beginning of the nation, then Egypt would have reflected it upon God for his name would have been polluted. God goes to all this trouble, 10 plagues, gets Israel loose. And if Israel fails, just comes out of Egypt and immediately does not have the strength and character to be a nation and to love God, then it was all in vain. That's why it actually says, did Christ die in vain? You've got to ask yourself, did I cause Christ to die in vain? It doesn't do anything. That's almost apostasy or heresy for me to say the blood of Christ is vain. But he's saying that's what happens. Let me say it to you in other words. If America falls, Paul Revere saying, I have but one life to give for my country. It's in vain. It's in vain that we had good leadership. It's in vain you had good parents if you fall. It's in vain if in the second generation you don't carry this on well. It's in vain that I've come down here and spoke every day if you don't live it. It's all in vain. Everything my mom and dad did is in vain if I don't follow in the steps of the Lord. It's all in vain. I come out of the gates with not gratitude and I rebel from the very beginning. Why do I rebel? I'm proving to the world that my parents had no wisdom. Why would I follow my parents? They had no wisdom. My dad, he was dumb. He wasted his life. Did you ever see what his salary was? It was a measly 32000 What good was it for my dad to serve the Lord? I remember times I went without. It was all in vain. My mom got up and spoke every week. The church ended in a split. That's what it's called if I chose that route. In vain. Oh, my dad spanked me, but as soon as I got out from his house, I never did it his way again. My parents always made me cook my steaks medium well done. I ate rare steaks for the rest of my life. Do you hear it in my voice? It's in vain. Wisdom is vindicated by its children. My dad is only wise if I turn out. What an odd verse for Jesus to say. You're only wise if your children turn out. It doesn't work. Look at him. Does your life make God out to be a liar? All the preachers that fall. You know, I was talking to a guy. I was witnessing to him. He said, you know, all the MA students here at Hired Payne, they skipped out on their rent. <laughs> you know, those Christian colleges. They kept having girls come over and spend the night. They all got drunk over here, these wannabe preachers. You all seen their parties. Yeah, they all wanted to witness. One old guy, he rented to some hired pain boys. He goes, I don't believe it. Here at this Christian college, the town talks. 
And you know, I could teach you. This could be my argument. Well, you can't keep people from gossiping. Doesn't matter. The old man is sinning himself. He's a hypocrite. He shouldn't judge me. The argument of self-defense doesn't work when you're legitimately wrong. I mean, you would think God's mentality would have been, these people are idolaters. They're messed up anyway. What does it matter? They're all going to go to hell. Why do you care? And if you think that way, you think like the child. And you don't realize the lover cares about the unsaved. He cares about his enemies. You know what my enemies don't know about me? Is I care about them. They've kept me up nights talking to God about them. They hate me. They want me to fail. They say all manner of slander against me. They trump themselves in here and pride and parade themselves. They don't know that it just earns them more time of me spending time crying out for them. What was Jesus' words on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The heart of a lover causes you to love those that are most unlovely. Because you know, if God hadn't forgiven me of my worst sins, I'd be just like them. It's only grace that made me not be like that person. If you get prideful, you become the very thing you hate. You start becoming the army you're killing. David became the guy he was mad at. That's how the poison works. That's what it does. It goes into your body and it causes you to become a tragedy. And David was worse of a tragedy here than Saul. But you can tell what kind of heart you have based on how you see these people that don't deserve it. I've been shocked at some of my, the ones that have come out of me, the children that cross learners that have grown up, that they somehow didn't even get the idea of forgiveness, that that never one time occurs to them. Did I have trouble with what happened in the NFL and everybody getting mad and splitting? Yeah, I thought one person would reach across the aisle and grab someone's hand and say, Let's pray together. Well, the NFL, by the time they sit there and they kneel, where they start dividing out, we're better than this. We pray. I liked it this past year where one guy dies on the field and everybody prays and they're able to bring him back to life and everybody's starting to become Christian again. That's what America's made out of. We're not made out of being divided. The devil, the witchcraft spirit tries to divide us. We're made to grab each other's hand and so we can pray our way through this mess. It's coming upon us that when God has lavished us with blessings, that the devil is trying to make us look like a failure. Then Paul pulls it forward in Romans 2, 24, and he does a dissertation on what you do to make the Gentiles blaspheme. So the two gravest sins, caring what people think, and not caring what people think. Could we build a case here that God cares about what people think? Joshua 2, 9 through 10, We have heard the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and what you did to all these kings. You know, St. Francis once said, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, you've heard this, use words. It's the reputation of the Lord on the world. Samson, he liked riddles and games and secrets. He made sport of his enemies, but one day the devil would take it and make sport of him. The worst consequence of your fall is that it gives God's enemies a chance to blaspheme. It discredits him. If you're vanquished, if you fail, it makes the other people score. 
Samson's capture was Dagon's glory. Samson is a buffoon for the drunkards now. They're laughing about him in the beer halls. The deepest of degradations is not spared upon him. And I've seen this happen. The enemy wickedly tortures the man that once walked with God. What would Samson's bitter thought be in the wild rejoicings? He could hear it even in the halls of the prison. If ever some conspicuous Christian champion falls into sin or even into just inconsistency, how great the skies rent with shouts of malicious pleasure. You can tell these are British words written by Alexander McLarian. How swiftly the conclusion is drawn that all Christians are no better than the non-Christian world. So why do it? The faults of Christians are the bulwarks of unbelief. The faults of Christians are the bulwarks of unbelief. The British can rot it. The honor of Christ is a sacred trust. It's scary. Our sins are not only darken our reputation, but cloud his. Darken ours and cloud his. A pathetic picture for the drunken holidays. That is what God's soldiers come down to when they forget him. Samson. He loved the riddles, but now he's become one. And just like he made sport of them, they're making sport of him. They punched out his eyes. They made him grind. And they took away everything that God had given him. But one day, his hair grew. And they didn't notice it. It makes the people think that it won't work in their lives. What is your dissertation to the Gentiles? You know, there was one man, and I want you to listen to how different he was. In Daniel 6, 4 through 5, Then the presidents and the princes sought to find an occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They looked for an occasion against him, but they could find no occasion nor any fault For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. And then these men say, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except this one thing. We find it against him concerning the law of his God. When we told him to quit praying, he kept on praying. When your enemies try to dig the dirt up on you, what did they find? Daniel gave them no fault. In fact, they told him, don't worship another God. And he opened the doors and he prayed three times a day in front of them. Jesus' concern for the pagans. It causes the Gentile too. In Hebrews 6 through 6, it gives you this understanding. It's putting, which is a present tense word. It's putting him to open shame. It's painful to note that we can do something called crucifying the Son of God afresh. It's shocking to know we have the power to crucify Christ again. That's Hebrews 6.6. If Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from our sins, why should we think it strange that Scripture describes those who have been truly converted but now are presently sinning, that when you presently sin, you're crucifying Jesus afresh? If ever we had a powerful argument to learn the secret to knowing we can cause a fallout, our revulsion at the thought of lifting a hand against our Savior should be enough to stop it. The very fact that you see yourself driving the nails into his hands again is enough to not put him to open shame. Conclusion. Two reasons people don't become a Christian. 
There are only two reasons. The people don't know a Christian. Second reason, the people know a Christian. (laughs) Now we're going to put a twist to the ending. Your testimony before the Gentiles is this prayer. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray, but I'm going to give it to you after I give you the punchline because the punchline is so funny that you may not remember the answer to this lesson. But listen to what David says to God, the lover, punchline ending. David reminds the Lord of his reputation. In Psalm 74, he says, Rise up, O God, and champion your cause. Be mindful, God. You will be blasphemed by base men all day long if you do not rise up and champion your cause. Now that's one lover speaking to another. If you fail to act, God, there are people that are base that are waiting to make sport of you. So champion your cause. You can only talk to someone like that if there's a lover relationship. God, you're going to cause problems on your own reputation if you don't do something here. Remember Peter? He denies Jesus before a servant girl. And then he stands up to the Jews. You Jews, you crucified him. Just 40 days before, he's like, I don't want anything to do with it. So David, I get tickled here that he says to God, you got to be mindful that you're going to be blasphemed by men if you don't rise up and be a champion and champion your cause. I get tickled the Peter because of the fact that Peter denied him three times. And Jesus said, if you deny me, I'll deny you before the father and the angels. You would think Peter wouldn't even want to use the word deny, but he goes, you Israelites, you denied him. I think I wouldn't even want to say the word. But here David uses the same phrase with God. So your testimonies before the Gentiles, this is the prayer that a lot of times I'll pray it and say, God, help me. You know I'm made of clay. You know, they say about senior believers, if you get up and you don't do the word that day, you fall just like the rest of them. You don't have any bigger of a defense. But people look up to you and think you should, and you could make a case. So here's my prayer. Lord, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. You lead me beside still waters. You put me in green pastures. Lead me in the path of righteousness for your name's sake and restore my soul. And so that's the closing prayer that I would say that helps you avert this dangerous Lord would you lead me in paths of righteousness not for me but for the sake of you amen